Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For decades, Myanmar was a heroin supplier to the world. But as production turned to methamphetamines and prices plummeted, domestic consumption has shot up. The government is failing to tackle the problem, so now vigilantes are doing it. And make sure to head outside tonight to catch a glimpse of Comet Neowise as it makes its closest approach to the Earth. It won't be back for thousands of years. We speak to the scientist who led the team that first discovered it in March. But first... So the question is, is who is protecting the British public from uh, interference in our democratic process? Well, in a nutshell, uh, we found no one is. Yesterday, British Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee released its much-delayed Russia report. It examined a long campaign of misinformation that may have influenced the 2014 Scottish independence vote raising questions about Russia's sway over the 2016 Brexit referendum. The report said that Moscow's meddling is the new normal and that successive conservative governments normally looked the other way. The report reveals that no one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. What's more, the committee pointed out how senior figures linked to the Kremlin have found easy access to the British establishment. The arrival of Russian money has resulted in a growth industry of enablers. Uh, lawyers, accountants, estate agents have all played a role. Russia's foreign ministry dismissed the report, calling it mere Russophobia. But British lawmakers are already proposing stronger security legislation, and today demanding testimony from the likes of Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. For now, though, the report has helped with what seems to be Russia's broader goal, nurturing distrust in the country's institutions. This report looks at the handling of successive British governments and the British intelligence agencies of the threat posed by Russia to the British government. Matthew Holhouse is our British political correspondent. It concludes that the British government have been laissez-faire and slow to respond to that threat, and it suggests that the security agencies have not got a grip on it either. Most explosively, it suggests that the British government and the security agencies failed to investigate the prospect that Russia interfered in the 2016 Brexit referendum. I mean, there are a lot of echoes here with the intelligence coming out of America on this very same topic. How would you compare those two situations? Clearly, the subject matter is similar. The difference is, is in the nature of these reports. 
This is a committee that looks at the performance of the intelligence services and the structures within the UK government that sort of handle and manage them. What it isn't is an investigation per se into specific allegations of Russian interference. Its main conclusion is that they don't know whether there has been Russian interference because the government did not look, but it does not delve deeper than that itself. Well, what's your take on that? Or what's the report's take on why the government would have simply looked the other way? There are three reasons why that might be. One is what they describe as a general laissez-faire attitude of the British government towards Russian and Russian interference at the time. The second is what it describes as an extreme reluctance on the part of the security services and particularly MI5, Britain's domestic counterintelligence and security agency, to get involved in the democratic process, which it says is understandable, but it still criticises that stance, particularly a topic as volcanic as the Brexit referendum. And it is at least obvious to me why the British government did not take a retrospective investigation into Russian interference because of the political context at the time. The Three years following the Brexit referendum, when Theresa May either had very narrow or no majorities in parliaments, were extremely politically fraught. Her position was very, very weak. She struggled to get legislation through parliament. She was continually accused by her critics and the Conservative Party of seeking to somehow weaken or water down or even stop Brexit altogether. And so for her at that time to have suggested to the intelligence agencies that they pursue a retrospective investigation into the circumstances of Brexit would have been seen as quite heretical and simply not something that she had the political capital to do. What, to your mind, does this report say about Britain's intelligence services and and how it's performed on this score? There are a number of lines of criticism of the intelligence services in it which are quite strong. It suggests that MI5 are self-directing, they choose their own targets, and it notes that they gave relatively little of their time to hostile state activity when the focus was on international and domestic terrorism. It also uh, sheds some interesting light on MI6, Britain's foreign intelligence agency. It suggests that they struggle to operate in Russia, that getting human intelligence is increasingly harder because of technology. Its uh, strong criticism is that Britain's intelligence and espionage law is out of date. One factor is whether it is illegal to be a foreign agent operating undercover on British soil. So it portrays a picture which some people think is perhaps unfair of a slightly chaotic approach to Russia on the path of the agencies. And the report also goes into the notion of Russian money and, and how it funnels into London and into British society and so on. What's, what's your take on that analysis? The report places this all in the context of business links between Russia and the UK over the past 20 or 30 years. It describes this in, in a slightly tabloid term as London grad. Successive governments have welcomed Russian oligarchs and their money with open arms. It adopts the charge which is often made by anti-corruption and anti-money laundering campaigners that the UK has acted as a laundromat. This open-door approach has provided an ideal mechanism by which illicit finance could be recycled through the London laundromat. 
This is not a new allegation. The criticism you can make of this is that it is not terribly discerning and it doesn't look at the broader interaction of Russian money and politics. It doesn't draw any distinction between uh, people who are living perfectly legal lives and those who might be involved in criminal activity. But this report could easily have come out last year before the general election, and, and yet we're only seeing it now. And there are a lot of questions as to why there has been that delay. That's right. This report was completed under the last parliament before the general election that took place in December 2019. One factor was that it couldn't be released until Boris Johnson's office had signed it off for release. That didn't take place until after the general election. They then had to form a new committee. The suggestion is that Downing Street has been trying to drag its feet and delay the report coming out. That's the accusation that's been made. If this report had come out at the time when it was prepared, it might not have made much of an impact. But the more it's been delayed, the more these questions have built up, there now are accusations flying around. The broader point is that if the ultimate aim of the Russian government is to sow discord and disillusionment in democracies, then the handling of this report and the circus that's gone on around it has not done anything to counter that suggestion. It's rather fueled it. The one question it does raise is when will all of these other questions be answered? What happens now that this is out in the open and that these accusations have been made and all of these questions raised? Things have moved rather quickly. Downing Street have said that they're not going to go over the 2016 referendum, that they see no case for further inquiry into that. However, British policy on Russia has arguably toughened up. Two weeks ago, we saw the Foreign Secretary announce a new regime of sanctions, which would allow the British government to target human rights abusers in Russia. These are a sort of a more nimble form of sanctions that targets individuals rather than apply to entire states. We also know that the British government wants to introduce a new national security regime which would give MI5 greater powers to, for example, investigate foreign agents operating in Britain. So for all the questions that this report doesn't answer, one of them is how effective any of Russia's measures may have been. We, we, we have to put that to bed and take it on faith that uh, security services and the British government will simply handle it better next time. Yes, one thing which has not been weighed up by this report and often isn't is how effective any of these alleged attempts may have been. The reason that matters is because the idea of Russia as this sort of swashbuckling power, a return to the glory days of 1960s espionage, the idea that Russia can flip democracies at its will is an important part of its power projection now. You know, it routinely denies these sorts of allegations, but at the same time, it sort of revels in them. And so if you don't interrogate actually how effective they've been, you do risk inflating Russia's capabilities in a way which actually suits the Russian leadership. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. 
Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. That is the sound of $144 million worth of narcotics going up in smoke. That's how authorities in Myanmar celebrated the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking last month. The country has long been one of the world's largest producers of opium and heroin, and since the 1990s, it's moved into methamphetamines, or meth. Myanmar has become both a production hub and a way station for meth in the region and onward to Europe, according to police colonel Hla Wai. But as supply has gone up, prices have gone down, driving a rampant domestic market. That has left the country to grapple with an addiction crisis of its own, sometimes in unusual ways. One night in 2017, under cover of darkness, a group of about 150 men from Kachin State, which is in a remote northern part of Myanmar, piled into their trucks and and drove a couple miles from their town into the wilderness. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent. Where the rice paddies give way to, to mountains, they, they found something that resembled a festival, according to one of the men I spoke with, Sang Na. He tells me that there were a lot of young people in their teens, 20s, 30s, hanging out high on heroin and methamphetamine sold to them by several dealers on the scene. <laughs> They, they rounded up the group. There were about 96 users and, and four dealers and, and packed them all into trucks and dropped them off at the town's police station. And this kind of nighttime raid to, to scoop up meth users, is, is that common? No, it's not. This particular group, which is called Pachasan, meaning sweep and clean, was founded in 2014 and, and claims to have 10,000 volunteers it was born out of frustration, really, with, with the police, who rarely pursue drug traffickers and are sometimes users and dealers themselves. According to the Secretary General of Pakistan, Hapalalum Hakao, Pakistan have, on several occasions, actually arrested officers without knowing who they were. So why did Pakistan come into being? How, how big is the meth problem in Myanmar? Well, it helps to have a sense of the history of Myanmar, you know, Myanmar is this incredibly diverse country, and many of the ethnic minorities there have been fighting for independence, some of them ever since the, the country was founded in, in 1948. Over the decades, some of these ethnic armed groups have actually allied themselves with the Burmese military. But whether they're allied with the military or not, all these groups need to feed their soldiers somehow. And so many of them have taken to producing drugs. So in the 70s and 80s, Myanmar was the world's biggest producer of opium and heroin. Since the 90s, meth has become much more profitable, so they got involved in in that. And actually since the 2010s, the emphasis has really been on on crystal meth, which is super profitable, much more profitable than the the low-grade meth they've been producing before, but which requires very sophisticated equipment and expertise So over the last decade, a lot of these groups have turned to giving protection to international organized crime groups that have moved into the country in order to produce crystal meth. Well, when we've talked about meth in Myanmar on the show before, it was primarily in the context of of stuff for export. I mean, how has this become a domestic problem? 
So much meth is being produced that the price has plummeted. Over the last five years, meth has supplanted heroin as a drug of concern, according to the government. And while there are no reliable data on the number of addicts in Myanmar, the problem is clearly severe. I spoke to Mai Kang Sang, a journalist who reports on Northern Shan State, and he told me that by his estimation, about 30% of the local population uses drugs. Well, in that case, why isn't the, the, the government kind of taking a firmer hand with this? Why is it being left to these vigilante groups? The first democratically elected government in Myanmar has only been in power for the last five years. The government is, is very weak, and particularly so in these borderlands of the country. The three strongest institutions in Kachin and Chan states where Pakistan are active are the Burmese military, um, which is not controlled by the civilian government, these ethnic militias, and the church. Most members of the uh, Kachin ethnicity are Christian, and prominent members of the Baptist church there basically decided they had to act and when you say act, you mean uh, rounding up uh, users and dealers uh, and, and dropping them off at the police station? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the things they do. But they've also destroyed numerous poppy fields, you know, between 3,000 and 4,000 hectares, according to the Pakistan Secretary General. And they also run uh, a network of rehabilitation centers. Addicts who are there against their will, and, and that's many of them, when they first arrive, are put in these kind of detox quote-unquote, chambers, which are quite prison-like. And to prevent them from escaping, they're placed in, in stocks or shackled for the first few days. The problem with this punitive approach to rehab is that it's highly ineffective. Around 80% of those forced into treatment will relapse when they're let out. So if, the, if those treatments don't work, I mean, what, what hope is there for, for the meth addicts of Myanmar? Well, some government officials are making promising noises. They've come around to the idea that there are more humane and effective methods of treating addiction and actually put out a policy in 2018 which would bring Myanmar's official approach to treating addiction in line with international standards. The problem is that hasn't been passed into law yet. But but the, the real underlying problem facing the government is the inexhaustible supply of drugs swilling around the country. They won't be able to cut off the supply unless they can end the civil war raging throughout the country, bring the, the military under civilian control, and turf out the organized crime groups, which are busy working away in these borderlands. Until they can do that, groups like Pakistan will have their work cut out for them. Charlie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Twenty-five years ago, the comet Hale-Bopp delighted scientists and stargazers as it streaked through the sky. Comet Hale-Bopp is hurtling through the inner solar system, a flying mountain of ice 40 miles across. It's a huge amount of mass tearing along. It's the wonders of nature writ large. I mean, it knocks spots off the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls, you know. It's, oh, it's just so, so far. Goodbye, Hale-Bopp. When we see another comet like you, I do not know. Today, we do know, because a new comet is lighting up the heavens. Neowise is the brightest in the northern hemisphere since Hale-Bopp. It's visible to the naked eye without a telescope, 
And tonight, it'll be its closest to the Earth, just 103 million kilometers away. Its discovery was a welcome surprise for the astronomers who were monitoring celestial threats to our planet. Comet Neowise was found by our team on March 27th of this year, and we saw it just as a string of fuzzy dots. Amy Meinzer is a professor of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona. Immediately, we knew that this object was probably a comet instead of an asteroid, which is more point-like and just looks like a moving star, essentially. But this object was fuzzy, and that is immediately a tip-off that something is going on. There's some kind of ice or rocks coming off of its surface. That was really exciting. But how exactly did you find it? Tell me a little bit about the project you work on. The project I work on, NEOWISE, or the Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, is a spacecraft that's orbiting the Earth, and it's looking for asteroids and comets that can get somewhat close to us. These are the objects we want to pay some attention to because we want to monitor them for any potential chances of impact. And so that's why you and and your teammates study these objects, just assessing the threat of a, a potential strike? Well, we study these objects for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, one of the things is that they're sort of like time capsules. They're really old. A lot of these things have been out there for billions of years, really a long time, almost as old as the solar system itself. So when they make these close approaches, when we can see them in the inner part of the solar system, it's like looking back in time. It records the conditions in which our solar system first formed. That's one reason. In another case, we'd like to know, you know, what they're made out of in case we ever do have to push one out of the way. We want to know what's inside, how tough is it, is it crumbly, is it strong, and just what its composition is. And what have you learned about Comet Neowise, then? This particular comet orbits the sun about every six or 7,000 years. So it's kind of an intermediate class of comet, if you will. It, it, it's coming from very far away in the solar system. I think this probably suggests that it had some kind of an encounter with Jupiter at some point in its distant past, and that has kind of brought its orbit a little closer into the inner part of the solar system. The comet has already made its closest approach to the sun on July 3rd. That's when the heating it experienced was the most intense. So now it's coming away from the sun, and it's going to pass by the Earth at a very safe distance. So it'll be interesting to see what it does, because as it gets closer to us, it gets easier for us to see. But at the same time, it's losing that powerful radiation from the sun that's driving the gas and dust off of its surface. And for us non-astronomers, how can we see the comet as it passes us by? This comet is in the northern hemisphere, so if you're listening from the southern hemisphere, unfortunately, this is not going to be a a target you'll be able to see. But from the northern hemisphere, if you look toward the Big Dipper, which is in the constellation Ursa Major, if you look down at the bottom of the scoop of the Big Dipper, let your gaze just sort of wander to the lower left of that. About an hour after your local sunset, that's when you'll see the comet start to appear. You need to let the sky get kind of dark because it it looks like a faint, fuzzy smudge in the sky. And you're seeing the light from the tail particles, the dust particles reflecting in the sunlight. And how about you? Will will you be watching tonight? (laughs) I have to admit, I am hooked on watching Comet Neowise. It's really, really special to get to see something that we spotted with a space telescope. And, you know, normally we see these things and they look like fuzzy dots in the sky to our space telescope. But it's really surreal to see this thing with my own eyes. And it just reminds me that we really are part of the larger cosmos, and uh, we get to be reminded of that once in a while. Amy, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jason. I really appreciate your time.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And check out introductory offers on a subscription to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.